and welcome to the second season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is David Levy. David is the Member Education Manager at Actors' Equity Association and writes for JewSchool.com, Talkin' Broadway, and CastAlbums.org, among other places. You can hear him talk about New York theater and performance art as part of the rotating panel of co-hosts on the Maximu podcast. We're going to talk today about musical theater reviews. Hi, David. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we are going to get started with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? So I grew up in a household full of the music of musicals. Um, my dad, when he was in college, was a college radio DJ for a program that did musical theater songs. And he got to keep a lot of those records. So those were the records that we played in our house. And I have oh, cool. memories from like being very, very young listening to those albums, some of which I think were totally over my head for that age. Like I remember being really attracted to Company because it had a very cool album cover with like mm-hmm. the purple and the orange. Oh yeah. And I remember liking Stop the World I Wanna Get Off because it had a clown on the cover. Yeah. Um, but it was a pretty smooth transition from listening to music to going to see shows. I remember in preschool we put on a production of uh, The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. I was very excited. I definitely knew what that was about and I remember like talking to the teacher as soon as it was announced and mm-hmm. finagling my way into a good part. I <laughs> told her that that's I definitely had to be the scarecrow because I really didn't have a brain, so I didn't really get the part. <laughs> that's how it works in preschool. What is the last great musical you saw? I saw Soft Power last night. Oh. And it nice. is great. I'm here to tell you it is great. I am seeing it in a couple weeks, so I, yeah, I'm really excited. It was... Um, in some ways, totally unlike anything I'd ever seen before, mm-hmm. and in some ways, very much like things we've seen before yeah. by design. So it's, you know, I don't know if they're still calling it this way, but before it came to New York, it was being described as like a play with a musical or a musical inside a play or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was prepared for it to be a little more experimental than I think it actually is. Yeah. It's more like a musical that has a couple of non-musical scenes framing it. Right. Um, but it's great. I mean, the talent behind it is, you know, David Henry Wong and Janine Tesori, yeah. who are both just so wonderful. And they're purposely linking it to the legacy of Rodgers and Hammerstein. So mm. you get this really gorgeous, lush sound. And it's an enormous orchestra for the public theater. Wow. Uh, I think it's like 23 players in the Newman Theater, which, hmm. you know, is only, a, I think, like a 300 or 400 seat theater. Also, just having a large scale musical where all but one of the cast members are Asian American is a huge deal. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the interviews I read with the creative team, David Henry Wong, pointed out that this is only, there have only been two musicals on Broadway that tell Asian American stories before now and that's mm-hmm. Flower Drum Song and Allegiance and there have mm-hmm. been others that tell Asian stories but right. um, you know to be able to tell their own stories is is huge. What older or classic show did you recently see for the first time and what was your experience with it? So this summer Encore's Off Center did Promenade 
which was a show that I never thought I'd get to see, um, that I have a little bit of a weird history with. When I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of time at the public library, and my library growing up in Stoughton, Massachusetts, had a very large collection of scripts of plays and musicals. And one of the books that I really gravitated towards in high school was a collection called Great Rock Musicals. And it had um, a pretty broad range of what, uh, some that I don't know that we would think of as rock musicals today, mm-hmm. including Promenade. It also had The Wiz. It also had some that you would expect, like Hair and Grease and right. Jesus Christ Superstar and Tommy. Uh, although it was actually before Tommy had ever really been made into a musical. Right. Um, but of those, Promenade was the only one that I really didn't know anything about. It started off off-Broadway, moved off-Broadway, mm-hmm. was so successful that they ended up building a theater called the Promenade Theater to house it, which is now where WP Theater is in the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ran for a long time, and uh, and people loved it. And Encores put on this production that I think really... Uh, was eye-opening. It, it made me hear these songs for the first time, even though I had known them now for like 20 years, uh, and and really put it in context. And it's, it's this very... So it's, it's, I guess, absurdist. It ended up being like really sharp social commentary that even though it was written in the 60s, mm-hmm. sadly, still was very sharp today. And, yeah. Um, and the songs really range uh, from sort of traditional musical theater to operetta, not a whole lot of rock. Again, not sure why it isn't great rock right. musicals, except that it has this very like kind of punk rock vibe to it mm. in the sense that it, it really is like uh, turning the conventions of society on its ear. What's a musical people might be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised? So I feel like this is the answer that you get every time you ask this question. <laughs> Not every time. <laughs> but often. Yeah. Um, and it's Cats. And um, I think this is partially because we just had such a great revival of it yeah. in New York. But I grew up... I, I am like... I'm, I'm 41 years old. I am mm-hmm. like the core demographic for the original production of Cats. But yeah. because my, I think my parents were fairly sophisticated theater goers, they had no interest in Cats. Therefore, I had no interest in Cats. Right, right. Towards the end of high school, I realized like I really like Jesus Christ Superstar. And I was starting to learn that I could have my own opinions about things right, but right. but cats for some reason it just it just seemed hokey and dumb and, and mm-hmm. weird and, and nonsensical so I just I never saw that original production and then uh, when they announced they were doing the revival I said I'm gonna do do the work within myself to be able to give this a chance yeah so I really like listened to the score and tried to go into an open-minded and and, and also like Went to see it with a friend who was excited for it so that we could sort of build off each other's right. energy. And right. just <laughs> and just, we sort of went and decided to have a good time yeah. and the show met us there. Which writers of the past and working today do you admire most? Um, Dorothy Fields, a lyricist and as a book writer. Um, and also someone who really spanned the generations because she started out working with folks like Jerome Kern, like Rogers and Hart, and ended, you know, writing Sweet Charity and yeah. Seesaw, which are, you know, like as contemporary as you could get in the 60s and 70s. And that's uh, tremendous that she was able to really bridge that gap and, you know, work with people older than her, younger than her. And the work is absolutely stunning. And, like, it's perfect. There's, like, not a syllable out of place. And it's uh, so evocative of, like, whatever the particular show is, but also totally liftable. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, I think that lyricists today could do a lot of good just by cuddling up to her work and studying yeah. it really hard. 
um, Carolyn Lee, who also mm-hmm. uh, yeah. worked with Cy Coleman, although also she has a lot of work that um, isn't as well known because it wasn't as successful that's started to get excavated. Um, there's a cabaret performer named Sarah Zahn who did a really wonderful album of Carolyn Lee music. Oh, cool. um, that, that includes a, a lot of stuff that I never heard before, including yeah. a number of songs. Yeah, she wrote the original version of Smile. Mm. Um, and right, she, I remember reading, yeah. I guess she that. died, and that's why um, mm-hmm. uh, Harold Ashman came in. Um, and uh, there's a the Unsung Musicals Company in New York did a concert of unsung Carolyn Lee a couple years ago, which you can watch on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did like a great Gatsby musical that I don't think ever got produced, but it has some really great stuff in it. Uh, Again, just really smart, witty, urbane lyrics. Um, I think of her as sort of the next generation of Lauren's heart. People who I love who are working on shows now are Christy Bauer, who's based here in New York. Mm -hmm. Former podcast guest. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Her... Uh, Fitzgerald's of New York. I've got uh, to see it in a couple different readings, nice. and it is. And then Sarah Ellis, who mm-hmm. used to be in New York and is now in London. Right. Um, and she's got two shows that I've seen that I love. Um, one is a musical version of Emma, mm-hmm. and one is a musical version of the Trojan Women. Well, let's go to our topic, which is musical reviews. So I guess um, we, we'll start with just what drew you to this topic and why did you want to talk about it? When I saw Spongebob on Broadway, mm-hmm. I remember thinking sometime around Squidward's big tap number, like, gosh, this is probably the closest I've come to knowing what it was like to see the Follies. Mm-hmm. Because we have this show that has songs written by all the different greatest songwriters of our popular music moment. And we have all these different talented performers who are really different from each other, um, all assembled under one roof with just like a lot of pizzazz, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of a lot of sparkles and a lot of confetti, and and everything just got bigger and bigger and bigger as the show mm-hmm. went on. I was like, gosh, you know. Uh, and I love SpongeBob. I didn't find the story to be the most compelling piece of that show, but it worked for me because yeah. it was so entertaining because. Uh, because I really enjoyed the spectacle of it all. And, and that got me thinking, like, gosh, why why don't we have things like The Follies on Broadway anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly if you go to Las Vegas or you go to Paris and go to the Moulin Rouge or even on certain cruise ships, you get things that are sort of in that model. But right. we don't have... Um, we don't have reviews that are written as reviews anymore, really. Mm. Although not really, we'll talk about that. But <laughs> but certainly not on a Broadway level. Right. Um, and I feel like like maybe we've missed out. As someone who's a big Sondheim fan, I for a long time really bought into this story that we tell ourselves about musical theater history that um, musicals kept getting better as they kept getting more refined and more integrated, and that you know Rodgers and Hammerstein shows were necessarily better than Rodgers and Hart shows because all the pieces were designed to go together and it was more of a whole piece and that is better Mm -hmm. and i now i'm thinking well maybe it isn't maybe it's good in a different way right i think and i think it's also just something that we hadn't had before right i think in some ways it's like what we're seeing in the movies right now where um as computer animation got better Mm -hmm. we're seeing fewer and fewer hand-drawn animation Mm -hmm. 
I don't think there's anyone who is like Beauty and the Beast is bad because it was drawn by hand. Right. Um, and I think that right now we're in this moment of must do more realistic, more lifelike, more, you know, again, like more yeah. integrated and, and that bubble will burst and I hope there will be <laughs> room for all sorts of different kinds of animated right. films. And I think that in musical theater, that bubble maybe burst a little bit in the 60s and 70s when uh, folks like Hal Prince really said like, well, what if things don't have to be quite so integrated? What if we have a concept instead of a, instead of a through line story? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what if, uh, you know, what if company? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what if a chorus line? And I think that the generation that came after that, mm-hmm. and, and really we're a couple generations now, have all sort of developed different takes on on musical theater that owe something to the review and something to the concept musical and something to the integrated musical. Right. So you end up with things like Starting Here, Starting Now, where mm-hmm. Malby and Shire put on a review, but it's a review that's assembled from songs that, many of which were written for integrated musicals that just weren't successful, mm-hmm. and so they repurposed them. Yeah. Um, and th- which then gave birth to uh, a generation later, things like Songs for a New World, which is also a, a mix of some discarded songs from shows that never mm-hmm. happened and some songs that were written directly for it. Right. But it also gave birth to like the Broadway or the musical theater song cycle. Mm-hmm. So you have folks like Maury Yeston doing December songs, which is a gorgeous piece that will never be on Broadway because it's a one-woman song cycle. Yeah. Um, and it's not particularly theatrical, but it's also not not theatrical. Right. Um, and then you have something like Tell Me on a Sunday, which became Song and Dance, which right. is a song cycle, but has a book. Right. Uh, or at least has like a, a very distinct story it tells. This is a long way of saying, I've been thinking about the review because part of me thinks what happened to them and part yeah. of me thinks, well, maybe it's just that they look different. And mm-hmm. uh, and that got me into this project of like, well, so what do they look like? And, right. and uh, I tried to come up with like a taxonomy of reviews, which ended up being more like a big Venn diagram because once I started to try to categorize them, I found that lots of things fall into lots of overlapping categories. Yeah. We can start with the category of uh, huge showcases for star talent. So this is uh, the Follies, right? Like mm-hmm. this is, um, I think when when I think of reviews, although not when everyone thinks of reviews, like this is where I like to start because that's sort of yeah in some ways like the pinnacle of the form if the pinnacle is the most famous people with the biggest budgets right right um and you know a lot of a lot of hollywood stars got their start in the follies and mm-hmm. you know uh folks like fanny bryce but also bob hope i feel like anyone who was in a screen musical in the 30s and 40s probably yeah. started if not in the Ziegfeld follies then in one of the competing you know mm-hmm. uh there was uh, the George White Scandals and the Earl Carroll Vanities. Mm-hmm. Um, Irving Berlin had several different series of uh, Folly style shows that yeah. he produced, although he also wrote for the Ziegfeld Follies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, Cab Calloway and Fred Astaire and his sister Adele Astaire and mm-hmm. like all of these people, um, literally every major musical star of the era uh, was at one of these shows because that's, you know, that right. was a huge, a huge industry on Broadway, um, and not just on Broadway. They toured the country in between gigs, and um, you know. So, and that's also, I think, part of when we think about what's different now is that 
um, well, there was no television. Right. <laughs> so uh, people were more likely to go to these things. But also the stars went out and brought these on the road. So it really mm-hmm. was like a national piece of culture that united people. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised to learn in researching this that, uh, like I had seen, there's a film of Ziegfeld Follies that's an MGM musical, which I think is not very good. But uh, <laughs> but there was also, Ziegfeld had a radio show for a couple of years of Ziegfeld's oh, Radio Follies, um, which makes sense because, it's, you know, uh, a lot of the things that we had on radio and now right. we have on TV sort of grew out of a stage tradition. Yeah. Um, in some ways, you know, the Ziegfeld Follies are the direct descendant or the direct antecedent of, you know, the Sunny and Cher show mm-hmm. and Saturday Night Live. Yeah, variety shows. Yeah. We don't really have variety shows anymore. Right. And, you know, like in the last few years, there have been a couple of attempts to try to revive yeah. them and they just haven't hit the right, the right, uh, formula right right yeah it just seems like the kind of form that it like pops up and then dies away right (laughs) and no matter what medium it's in so i think if we want to think about like the venn diagram of these yeah i think there's some uh significant overlap between these sort of uh lavish ziegfeld style shows and then gimmick driven shows Mm -hmm. um so uh some of that overlap is actually with irving berlin um, because he also wrote a number of, we can call them gimmick shows or we could call them concept shows. Yeah. Right? So he did two all-soldier reviews, Yip Yip Yap Hank in uh, World War One, and then This is the Army in World War Two. Mm-hmm. This is the Army was also made into a film uh, with Ronald Reagan when he was an actor. So when they made these into the film, like, did they then put, like, a plot over the songs? Is that how that works? Not necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. It could just be, uh, you know... Here's a song, here's a sketch, here's another song. Right, right. I'm thinking of, so as I was uh, listening to some of the Irving Berlin review stuff, I heard some songs that I've seen in movies that have a plot put onto them, which I thought was interesting, like Heat Wave. Right. um, Being in one of my favorite um, movies as a kid, There's No Business Like Show Business, which seems to be a lot of like Irving Berlin songs that, you know, got shoehorned into this right so he would have actually originated in one of his other concept shows as thousands Mm. cheer which was based on the concept of the newspaper so eat Mm. that was like the weather report song um and there was like a funny pages song and there Mm. was a the um, personals ad song and so there were different all the different songs and sketches were about different parts of the newspaper that's so cool Um, easter parade was the rotogravure section Mm -hmm. the photo section um and then that obviously then was lifted for the movie Easter Parade, which mm. was built on songs from other Irving Berlin yeah. properties. Um, the Bandwagon, which uh, most of us know from the MGM musical, mm-hmm. which is about touring uh, performers, was originally right. a review uh, with a lot of the same songs, but none of that plot. It was a, yeah. a vehicle, a star vehicle for Fred and Adele Astaire. Everyone who like sneers at jukebox musicals, mm-hmm. no one really looks down at Singing in the Rain as a Mm. film that was built on songs that were mostly written for musical reviews. Right, um, right. Or Easter Parade or The Bandwagon or An American in Paris or any of these classic films. There's no business like show business. (laughs) Ethel Merman is really good. It's a gainer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Marilyn Monroe, who sings Heat Wave in it. But um, yeah, films of my youth. It's also interesting to me that a lot of songs from reviews ended up having second and third lives either in a lot of them in these uh, sort of Technicolor era musicals where they were just 
lifted and transplanted now in these sort of Franken musicals that they put together, like mm -hmm. Holiday and on Broadway. Any number of these shows that are right. cobbled together from like the catalogs of Irving Berlin or Cole Porter or right, George right. Gershwin or whatever. Some of the songs that are used in those were originally written for reviews, um, but also as standards. Like I was shocked to learn uh, songs that I thought were just written as like standalone radio hits came from some of these reviews. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Cy Coleman, Carolyn Lay song, You Fascinate Me So, mm. I learned came from um, one of the reviews uh, in the 50s that I would categorize as smaller showcases. Um, yeah. So after the era of the Follies ended, and those pretty much were done by World War II, and I think that's... Um, partially probably because of the war, partially because of the rise of the integrated musical. Yeah. Um, partially because some of these, um, a lot of them were really closely tied with the impresarios who put them on. And right. as those folks passed away, there was not a new generation of people to rise up. One exception was this guy, John Murray Anderson, who uh, originally, during the era of Ziegfeld, had sort of the anti-Ziegfeld review called the Greenwich Village Review, which was a... Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of smaller down and dirty thing happening yeah. downtown uh, that was very popular and then he um, lived long enough to to see the rise of off-Broadway and sort of come back oh, yeah. um, and eventually in uh, I want to say the 50s but I didn't write down the date uh, there was a Broadway musical called uh, John Murray Anderson's Almanac which uh, brought his material back to the main stand with uh B. Lilly and Sir Richard and some other famous folks singing oh, his songs. Nice. Um, but by the by the time really of the 50s, uh, we, we had the rise of, of cabaret as sort of a distinct thing from what had been sort of the nightclub, supper club yeah. scene of the wartime era. And a lot of the folks who ran these cabarets, in addition to having, you know, nights where someone, uh, you know, like a star from Broadway would come and do their club act. Right. They would also put together reviews um, to try to nurture younger talent. Um, so we had folks like Julius Monk, who uh, had a series of reviews that all had numbers in their titles. Mm -hmm. First one was called Four Below in 1956. And he did shows all the way uh, from 1956 until 1968. Mm -hmm. And many of them have cast recordings, which yeah. uh, is a little bit rare for... Uh, off-Broadway cabaret-style reviews at the time. Uh, Billy Barnes, who um, did a lot of work, did some work in New York, but a lot yeah. of work in L.A. and also a lot of work in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. He wrote a lot of the like special material for award shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but also, uh, the Billy Barnes review ran on Broadway. Um, mm -hmm. And he he kept writing them like into the 2000s. There's uh, Leonard Stillman, who did the New Faces shows, which um, introduced talent like Eartha Kitt, to mm -hmm. America. Yeah, that's like one of the things that I recently just realized about reviews, like just their power, was that like just introducing people. Right. That um, like all of a sudden, like this person that we now just know as like a, like an institution, right. you know, like started somewhere because and they came through the reviews. Sure, and, and that's true also of the songwriters and the, and the yeah, sketch yeah, writers, you right. know. Um, People like Mel Brooks got their start writing sketches for yeah. reviews, and uh, all of the great songwriters of of that mid-century generation, mm -hmm. Bach and Harnick and Schmidt and Jones, yeah. and there's like a few different equivalents to these things now, right? So we've yeah. got um, 
I think, I think sort of the, if we think of like the, the contemporary era yeah. started really with um, starting here, starting now, mm. which is you know, a great place to start. Yeah. Uh, in that it was these composers sort of putting on their own work to showcase their own work. Now, that wasn't the first time they did that. You know, Jerry Herman wrote a couple of reviews before um, he ever wrote Milk and Honey. He had Nightcap and he had Parade, which uh, mm-hmm. was put out on CD. Um, which again, he wrote to showcase himself. Right. Um, but for whatever reason, I feel like starting here, starting now, because it's the next generation of songwriters, feels like the beginning of Mm. a different moment yeah um and because it it inspired uh it inspired a lot of people to do that same sort of thing and we're still in some ways suffering the consequences today um yeah and i think that part of what makes starting here starting now and closer than ever so good is that the songs are really good cabaret songs Mm -hmm. which makes them really bad songs for a show that's not a review right um which is why their greatest success have been in reviews and not necessarily in the shows they've written for Broadway. And then sort of the next like update to that was uh, in the year 2000 or so, RCA put out an album called Grateful, which was a collection of John McKino songs. Oh, yeah. And that was interesting because no one knew who the hell John McKino was at the time. Right. Um, but he got a lot of well-known theater famous people to, to yeah. record the songs. Um, and all of a sudden, like, that was like his calling card. Yeah. And once he did that, the floodgates opened and every up and coming composer called their friends to do them a favor, record a song <laughs> and put out an album like that. Yeah. Um, and in some ways those albums became like the next generation review. Yeah. Although it's funny because then eventually John McKino became well known enough that uh, they did stage a review called It's Only Life, which includes mm-hmm. most of the songs from Grateful <laughs> and other songs that he wrote. Yeah. Um, but uh, you see, um, I think that, I mean, that certainly continues today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the other piece of that is sometimes they actually will put on a full, st- full review and sometimes they'll just come and do their show for a night or two at a place yeah. like 54 Below right. or Birdland or Green Room or wherever. Um, and it's it's interesting because I feel like What's maybe gotten well, there are a couple of things that got lost. First of all, somewhere along the way, mm-hmm. the sketches got lost, right? Yeah. Like, and reviews became uh, much more about the songs and much less about the laughs or the jokes or whatever, right. which is fine. Like, that's a choice. Yeah. Um, but also, sometimes you feel like the production gets lost mm-hmm. um, because even if, you know, the big joke and a number of these different reviews had numbers lampooning other reviews. That it was like always like three people in black turtlenecks with stools and nothing else. <laughs> yeah. But like there was a director and there was a producer and there was a choreographer mm-hmm. and there were like, there was, uh, it wasn't just the writer trying to do it all themselves. Right. Um, and sometimes you wonder if something gets lost when it becomes a recital as opposed to like yeah. a, a quote unquote show. Now, what's also, if we're looking back at our Venn diagram, yeah. the overlap there is then there's also this thing where people sometimes create reviews of someone's work without that person necessarily being super involved, mm-hmm. which really, I think the first sort of big one of those is Side by Side by Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such a big hit, yeah. um, both first in London and then here, mm-hmm. and then also in many other countries in the world. And it still yeah. gets done today, which is fascinating given that 
uh, you know, that was produced before Sweeney Todd, so it's missing like right. some it's, major parts of his career. It's like part one. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, that was four people with one piano. Yeah. Uh, and only three of them have to sing. So, uh, you know, it was also very economical, which is, I think, yeah. the reason why it keeps getting done. Right. Um, but that, you know, that's sort of the one end of the spectrum. Then the other end is Jerome Robbins Broadway, which was, mm-hmm. you know, like 50 people, a full orchestra, and like 800,000 sets and costumes, mm-hmm. which very rarely gets done yeah. for a number of reasons now. <laughs> but, but largely because it's expensive and hard to stage. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff sort of in between. We had Fosse on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, off Broadway, we had things like And the World Goes Round. I feel like after Side by Side by Sondheim, uh, every composer and lyricist... Got a, got a treatment. Of yeah. <laughs> the next sort of overlap is what I guess we'll call like the jukebox review, mm-hmm. which the best one, and, the, and really, again, like the one that sort of kicked off this subcategory yeah. was Ain't Misbehaving, mm-hmm. which was put together by Richard Maltby Jr., who was already flying high from starting here, starting there, mm-hmm. um, which took the work of Fats Waller and brought to life for a new generation. And if you've only heard Amos Baby, if you've never seen it, what I think yeah. gets a little bit lost in translation is that it really creates five characters without using any dialogue but each of those performers has a real persona and like a real sort of aspect of what made Fats Waller such a captivating performer. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not just five people in black turtlenecks with stools. Like right. it's, it, it, it is doing something really theatrical. Um, and actually we're really lucky. I don't know if you know this, but the original cast was filmed for TV oh. and it's not available on DVD as far as I know or mm-hmm. streaming officially right but it's definitely on youtube yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's really i it's really worth watching what's amazing is that even though it was really tailored to the skills of this cast and the original cast was incredible you know mm-hmm. andre de shields and mm-hmm. nell carter and ken page yeah. and charlie water like it's whoa but it's also a show that has been done so many times and with so many different performers who each are able to bring their own special something to it and yeah. it works just as well with the right mm. you know with the right chemistry of performers and director and, yeah and the material's so good right um but then that you know gives birth to things like smoky joe's cafe yeah. which uh lest i sound like i don't like that I, I i saw that for the first time was it last summer when they did it in new york again oh, and right. i thought it was great I, I didn't see it but yeah i did not expect to like it as much as i did and i had a wonderful time and then you have things like After Midnight, mm-hmm. which is even a little bit less unified in that it was just a bunch of songs. That was the one. Um, it started as an encore's show called Cotton Club Review. And it uh, right. basically was songs from uh, the Harlem Renaissance era mm-hmm. done with an onstage big band. Um, when it came to Broadway, they had different guest stars uh, who each did like a week or two. So like when I yeah. saw Vanessa Williams... Uh, was in it for mm-hmm. like four numbers yeah. um, and there was a little bit of poetry in it but it was mostly just musical numbers yeah uh, and it was about capturing an era and presenting sort of a a moment in time yeah. um, and again like I thought it was very entertaining I think you can see it now on one of the major cruise lines that that is a show where I sat there thinking like what distinguishes this from a concert mm-hmm and uh, I don't know that it's always a useful 
thing to do. Like, yeah, I don't know that we need to draw such sharp lines between things. Like, right. there is such a thing as a theatrical concert. Yeah. There are also uh, shows that are less theatrical. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, uh, but but that that's sort of like I, I think the far extent of like the jukebox review. And then there's all you know smaller versions of that things like shout the mod musical uh oh. and which is you know songs from like the 60s yeah. in england and um beehive and uh i mean you name it i'm sure there's been a musical review of that kind of music i think we kind of skipped over a lot of the the gimmicks, gimmicks. Yeah. yeah the gimmick driven review that that area of the venn diagram um Things like musical and Forbidden Broadway and and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's funny. I feel a little bad with the word gimmick because yeah. I started thinking about O Calcutta, which uh, depending on whether or not you think Cats is a review, <laughs> O Calcutta may be the longest running review to have ever run mm-hmm. on Broadway. Yeah. Um, and that was what's interesting is that wasn't even the original production. That was a revival. That was the longest oh. running. Uh, if you're not familiar with O Calcutta, it is nonsensical garbage that people went to because there were naked people. Right. <laughs> uh, it was put together by a British drama critic named Kenneth Tynan. And like, a, being kind, you could say it's like absurdist sketch comedy mm-hmm. and songs. And the unifying theme was nudity, but like literally nonsensical. <laughs> it also inspired like a whole line of imitators mm-hmm. um let my people come which uh i actually think is a better show like the songs are mm-hmm. better and uh it's more inclusive i think part of let my people comes mission was like we're gonna do this and also like acknowledge that there are queer people in the world mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty bold for 1974 and i think naked boys singing which has been around since 1999 and mm-hmm. i believe is still playing and has also been made into a movie uh also like to me is not super scandalous it's charming it's yeah i don't think it's brilliant material but it they could have gotten away with much worse material right because people aren't going for the material <laughs> right right um so so those i think of as gimmick shows but i don't know if that's fair yeah i think maybe the the kinder way to think of them is is thematic shows yeah. right uh which lumps them together with things like Forbidden Broadway and musical, and also This is the Army and mm-hmm. Pins and Needles, which right. was the labor union musical put together by Harold Rome on behalf mm-hmm. of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and ran for years in the 30s. Forbidden Broadway has been around since 1982 and is yeah. back in New York right now. Right, right. Uh, you know, and it's things and songs, mostly songs, but every every installment tends to have like one or two little sketches or, uh, or at least extended musical sequences. Um, Primarily parodies of Broadway music, but also some original songs, both because Gerard Alessandrini, who creates it, is a pretty good songwriter. Yeah. Um, so like he's written some like original opening numbers or, yeah. or um, thematic numbers, but also, especially in the early years, when he wasn't sure that he could get the rights to a song, he would mm-hmm. sometimes write a sound-alike song. Yeah. Um, just as sort of like a cover-his-ass sort of protection. Um Musical, which recently closed, but it had closed in the past and come back, so I wouldn't count it out. Right. Have you I, ever seen it? I saw it, yeah, back in, like, I want to say 2005. So that was when it was pretty new. Yeah. What What was it like? Oh, my gosh. Now I'm trying to remember 2005. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I can't remember any sketches. If There may have been, though, but I, I remember songs. I don't know how much I laughed, but it was, <laughs> it was like, like, upbeat, you know, like, satirical 
songs about you know what was going on in, in the news i guess there are two recordings of it from two different eras of the show yeah um and on the one hand you listen to it and you're like oh this is clearly like the work of very talented people yeah but because it's so topical it's like really hard to listen to now because it's just like it's just so irrelevant to right now. right which is true also of a lot of the shows from the 50s and 60s right like some of it wasn't even topical in terms of being about the news but just about like celebrities or trends yeah, or fads and, life and life at that time yeah and then i guess maybe things like i love you you're perfect now change fit into mm-hmm. that which was uh one of the longest running reviews off broadway that started mm-hmm. in 1997 um right. it was about i never saw it dating and relationships musical theater writers like of your generation mm-hmm. are and i hope this doesn't sound dismissive of the previous generation but i think you're more ambitious right mm-hmm. like i don't think there are a lot of people who are like i want to write a light and frothy review, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, well, and I think also just because like we don't see we don't see a, that a place for that right out there, you know. We don't see like like oh like if I write that, then you know it's gonna go in like the you know on theater row, and you know I'll get all uh, it'll run, and you know we're just not seeing that happen, right? So, like we're not, um, and usually, and I think also like when you do have. Um, something that resembles a review or one of those types of reviews come out, it's, is you, I feel like it's usually producer-driven mm. um, than, than writer-driven. Whereas, like, you know, but I, I could be wrong. But. Well, I, you know, certainly looking at, at this list from the past, like, the producer-driven ones are really the ones that jump out at me, like, yeah. of, of those, like, here's a producer who wants to foster younger talent. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of... Uh, the only person I can think of today who's kind of doing that is Jen Tepper, mm-hmm. but she hasn't. She's been producing them as one-off concerts, not as right. like a recurring cabaret. It just keeps making me think of that line from Merrily We Roll Along. We'll do a review, right? <laughs> it's just like no. I mean, it's more like more people are saying like. We'll do a song cycle, you know, or right, something, right. <laughs> something like that. Or like we'll do a concert, but we can only we'll like, do, we'll do it once yeah. and put it on YouTube. Right. We'll do a cabaret of our songs, and yeah, and it's one night, and yeah, and then it, you know, you film it and you put the clips on YouTube. Right. Yeah. Um, the the other example I thought of that's happening right now, but it is writer driven, is mm-hmm. Joe Keenan has been doing this show called Everybody Rise, oh, which he's been doing at Birdland. Uh, although the next performance, I believe, is at the York. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, parody songs about uh, mm. the current moment in politics. Yeah. Although I, I will admit that, like, spending money to go sit and, like, even though it's funny, like, to sit and sort of, like, live in our politics for a couple of hours <laughs> doesn't sound fun to me. Well, and I think also, um, is like, we get, I mean, it's musicals, but we get a lot of that on TV. Yeah. Like, we get that on, on Late Night and, you know, uh, Daily Show or, you know, whatever those shows are. Like, we're getting that um, not as musical you know, right. the review, but we're getting that, like, satir- satirization of the news, like, in that in that way. Yeah, but it has been good to see that this show has been doing well enough that yeah. they're doing multiple performance of it and bringing it back. I sort of wish that someone would just, like, put it somewhere, you know? Like, right. instead, of, instead of having to guess when is it going to pop up next, like, give them every Thursday night at night. We talked about yeah. the concept musical sort of shattering mm-hmm. the, like, straight line of progress of integration, but yeah. some of these concept musicals really heavily rely on review elements. So Follies right. being an obvious one because it's about the Follies. Right. But, you know, uh, 
when Avenue Q came out, a lot of people were sort of scratching their heads like, is this a book musical? Is this a review? Right. Um, because it takes its form from Sesame Street, which itself takes its form from the review. Right. Um, but also, it does have um, a little more of a through line than mm-hmm. a, a review does, yeah. you know, like the characters grow and change. And... Yeah, I mean, it won best book, so. Right. <laughs> well, but right. listen, a review, I'm mean, listening, Cats won best book. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, like, a, you know, a review could theoretically win best book if it has great sketches. Right. It certainly has a plot. Yeah. Like, if, if I think of, it's hard to say, like, what makes a review a review, but I think the lack of a plot is certainly mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Like, I was having a discussion on Twitter the other day, like, is your good man Charlie Brown a review? Mm-hmm. It is scenes it's like sketches and songs yeah. now it has consistent characters all the way through but right. arguably so does ain't misbehaving mm-hmm. um there isn't really like a plot in terms of like this happens and then this happens and this happens right maybe it is a review i it, that's the point where it sort of becomes who cares like right. is a review is it not a review it's not really important it's a great show I think Runaways might just be a straight up review like it's a mm-hmm. it's a concept review or a theme review I don't think I've seen it called a review right well that's yeah. that's funny because so I saw it when Encore yeah. did it um, I saw that too and I saw High School do it yeah it, but it, it it certainly doesn't have a, yeah. a story you know like it's it it's just songs and and scenes barely even scenes yeah. more like poetry recitals uh, right. you know on a theme right I mean I think it's it's um, you know similar to hair I guess in that yeah but even hair has like a little wisp of a story <laughs> a suggestion of a story it has a, yeah it has a character who who uh, there's who a goes from point A to who, point B yeah right. and who carried through to the end yeah um, um, but even hair I think falls into this like it certainly owes a lot to mm-hmm. review in yeah. terms of its form. Coming off of the era of like the really like sticky cabaret reviews, like yeah. it, it just, it felt like such a different world. Yeah, you know? and it was, uh, I feel like the 70s had a lot of those like concept musicals to a point of like not having a uh, inner city. Right. Um, just not having a, a, like cons- character, like consistent characters or plot. But, that, but they were like, sort of their own thing. Yeah, and it like, you know, came out of the public theater. So that was right. like part of that ethos, uh, you know, that they, you know, those were the kind of musicals they were doing. Right. And, and stuff. And Liz Widows, who did Runaway, she liked to call a lot of her shows cantatas. Mm-hmm. That was like her, her big thing. But like her cantatas were just reviews under a different name. Well, let's move on then to our next section, which the Why Is This So Good section. And we're going to be talking about a song from a review. Um, something from Upstairs at O'Neill's, which is a review um, that we didn't talk about, but if you want to give a little context. Sure. So it's from 1982, and it was put together by Martin Charnin, who was uh, on a high from the success of Annie. Uh, and I think, you know, he was one of these people who came up in the review system in the yeah. 50s and 60s, and I think this was his chance to kind of give that back to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, it was one of those, like, like four or five people in Black Turtlenecks with stools. They actually had a song called Stools where they made fun yeah. of how <laughs> you can't do a review without stools. Right. Um, it introduced B.B. Newworth to the uh, Broadway mm-hmm. community. Oh, this was off-Broadway. Um, and uh, this particular number was written by a team of uh, Doug Bernstein and Dennis Markell. Uh, and uh, Dennis was also in the show and performed the song. Uh, and they... 
uh, they're just terrific songwriters who uh, never really broke through, um, at least in musical theater, which is too bad. They were able to write really classic sounding songs with really smart concepts and really good lyrics. This is the first time I heard this song. So it's a, it's a song that is a, a companion song or an answer song to the song Nothing from a chorus line. Uh, and this song is called Something, and it is in the voice of Mr. Carp, who is the teacher that Morales is singing about in Nothing. Yeah. Um, it's his side of the story. Um, and I think because it is in conversation with a song from a classic musical, that gives it a little more of a staying power than some other review material might have otherwise. Right. Um, and it's really clever because it's not just that the lyrics are in conversation, but... Uh, the music of the song is also sort of an inversion of the music from from nothing. So mm -hmm. it's not the same song, but it's it's the same rhythm and it's sort of uh, complementary. Yeah, melody. it's not. It's like not exactly a parody. It like feels like a parody, but it's not really because it's not like a parody song. I feel like would be taking the lyrics of the song with the same musical line and just changing certain words, lines right. here and there. So it's about something else. But this is actually. I mean, when you listen to it, it sounds a lot like uh, nothing, but it is uh, it is its own song in a way. And, and I think that's part of the genius of it is that it, it the minute it starts, well, first of all, it starts with them saying, hello, <laughs> I'm Mr. Carp. Maybe Mur you've Murray heard, Carp. I'm Murray Carp. Yeah. Maybe you've heard of me. Yeah. And, and so already, like, once, once the right. performer says that, those in the know just sort of yeah. lose it. Or you're, or you're like, Murray Carp, Carp, why does that sound familiar? And then the music starts, and you're like, oh. Right, and the band <laughs> is just close enough that you're like, oh, I get it. Hello, my name is Murray Carp. Maybe you heard of me. I used to teach Drama One at the High School of Performing Arts. So it was the first day of class, and I was so excited. I had everyone in the auditorium, and I told them to come up on stage to do this simple improvisation about being on a bobsled in the snow. Well, they're all doing great, except this one little girl, Morales, who was just sitting there. Every day for a week, all the students got the message, felt the motion, every bump. Every kid was alert and involved, except Morales. She just sat there like a lump. I said, do something. Please just do something. If you would try it, you'd really do it well. You're probably nervous. Do you speak English? You've got lots of real potential, I can tell. So I made it even easier. So part of why I like this song is that it would have been very easy to make this just a one joke and done sort of like, oh, ha, ha. Um, yeah. But, but it's actually... It's a little bit deeper than that because it takes, first of all, it takes the question seriously of why was Morales having such trouble in acting <laughs> class, yeah. which is a question that a chorus line never really deals with seriously. Like she complains mm -hmm. about how uh, these acting exercises don't work for her, but no one ever makes her stop and say like, okay, but like, why was that so hard for you? Or what, mm -hmm. what was it that, that like was so off-putting for you? Right. Um, and here, instead of getting the picture of, a teacher who just is like throwing nonsense exercises at his students. He's, here's a teacher who really cares and is really frustrated that he can't reach this yeah. student and really 
uh, trying to figure out, like, as any good teacher should, like, how can I do better? Right. And it's funny because it does that within the facts of the original song. Right. He's still kind of an asshole. Oh, yeah. He's a little racist. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, and he's, you're getting his perspective, but it's not like, but it's not like, oh, like, he was good the whole time. It's, it's, he's, right. He gets frustrated with her. Yeah. Especially like, because, you know, he's singing this from beyond the grave. So he knows how her story ends. Right. And he's, yeah. And that's another thing that I thought was so clever about the song, too, is that, like, it's not just that, like, here's a character from the song, because the way chorus line is as a musical we know that these are stories from real people Mm. so the fact that mr carp is a real person in the world what you know was a real person in the world you kind of forget that it's not just a character like this is based on somebody who who told the story and it was used in the show so you know we don't know how we don't know how they changed it but Theoretically, like Mr. Carp is is a real guy, <laughs> and 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 so the song uses that because it it extends beyond the moment of Mr. Carp's death, mm-hmm. and he then gets frustrated that not only was Morales such a jerk to him, but then she rides that jerkiness to success in a chorus right. line, and he's like watching from beyond the grave while she. You know, gets front row seats to nine, which right. was the hit show when the song was written. And... Imagine you're on a bobsled. She said, they don't have bobsleds in San Juan. I said, hey, don't give me this ethnic guilt trip crap. I mean, Gonzalez was a great bobsled. And Ramirez did the best table I have seen in 25 years. Jesus Christ. So depressed, got a shrink, and I begged him, doctor, help me. Could you maybe... Please explain. There's this girl in my course and she gives me indigestion, palpitations, such a pain. He said, do something. You must do something. You should retire before you pay the price. He told me, Murray, this girl is Tsuris and she will kill you if you don't take my advice. (laughs) But did I listen? No. By the time she quit the course, it was too late. The damage had been done. Six months later, I got real sick and died. Morales stood above my grave and cried. Two-faced little bitch. So I was talking to Busby Berkeley the other day. He tells me after losing out on every audition, Morales meets Michael Bennett and tells him the whole story. He puts it in a show, and everyone hears what a terrible guy I was. It's not just like within the confines of the the song, the, the the show, and the character. It's within the confines of like the whole a chorus line, right? Like uh, phenomenon. Yeah. And also, I think that helps make it a little less jerky, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, he knows that this girl turned out okay, so like you kind of understand why he's grumpy about it, right? Um, yeah. And I also love that like. The it flips on its head some of the examples that she uses. Yeah. You know, like she says, like, oh, you know, we didn't have bobsleds in <laughs> San Juan. And he's like, well, Martinez was the best bobsled. Right. Or like <laughs> the humor is, is not just is not just random. It's really like yeah. based on like very careful observation of the original song. Right, right. And 
<laughs> just the idea that like she actually killed him. Right. <laughs> it, it doesn't say it explicitly, but well, it kind says of... six months later, it got real sick and died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it kind of is like he got he was so frustrated with her. It caused him such. Like service is the word service that that it led to his death, and I also love how like because in in the song nothing the original one the hook the nothing the hook of the song kind of changes as it goes through, um, and and likewise and this something is also changing as it goes through like uh, do something and like uh, and then you get to the end and uh, he's talking about like what he got out of like the he doesn't get any money and then it ends right. on the nothing. <laughs> it's just every, it's like every line from the original song is like, is is flipped or taken in a new way. It it feels like it's an insider joke, mm-hmm. but also Chorus Line at the time was literally the most popular thing in the world. So right. uh, so it, it's both, it feels like you're all in on something insidery, but it's actually not at all insidery. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, I, I think that's a trick that Forbidden Broadway has since done very well mm-hmm. and making everyone feel like they're a little bit smarter because they get the joke, even right. though the jokes don't necessarily have to be all that smart. She gets hot. The fans beg her to sign. She gets a seat on opening night of nine. She gets to play the Y with Julie Stein. She gets to go on dates with Calvin and Kevin and Robert and Stuart Klein. Worst of all, she gets a monthly check from Chorus Line. And I get nothing. Let's go on to our final section, which is something wonderful, where we just talk about upcoming or current musical theater uh, books, events, shows that we're excited about or want to give a shout out to. All right. So I have two things I want to give a shout out to. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is a book and it's called Elaine Stritch, The End of Pretend by John Bell. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are actually two Elaine Stritch books uh, that are coming out in October. This one I think is already out. And there's also a biography of Elaine Stritch coming out later this month. Mm -hmm. This book is, it's sort of a memoir of a friendship. John Bell is a musical theater professor Mm -hmm. uh, in Pennsylvania. And in the last several years of Elaine Stritch's life, they struck up a friendship um, that grew pretty close. um, And he continued to visit her pretty regularly over the course of I think maybe the last five years of her life, including after she moved uh, to Michigan. Yeah. And with her permission, pretty early on in their friendship, he started keeping really extensive notes of their conversations uh, with the intention of turning it into a book. She'd always wanted to write a memoir and she never finished it. So I think that um, this was one way of her trying to satisfy that itch. Yeah. Um, And I admit, when I first heard about this book, I was a little suspicious uh, I wasn't sure how good it would be. Let me tell you, it is very, very good. Oh, good. It's just, it is a really beautiful tribute to her. Yeah. That also doesn't shy away from uh, showing her rough edges. And uh, if you were curious what she was like when there was no audience, mm-hmm. or at least when the only audience was someone that she also had a personal relationship with, yeah. like this book delivers on that. It's And it also goes into her... Her past, like, I don't think you'll learn a lot about her past that you don't already know if you've seen her one-woman show. Right. Um, and you get the sense that she had that material so well rehearsed that she would sometimes just use it in conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also really get a sense of her when 
she let her guard down um, in some of her darkest moments um, and some of her best moments. Yeah. And it's, uh, I really came away with a, a new appreciation of her as a person. Um, uh, she wasn't easy. She certainly wasn't a saint. Um, but, uh, you know, she was, she was a real three-dimensional person. And uh, I just really, I really felt like I saw her in all three dimensions mm. uh, by reading this book. Nice. Um, so uh, I was really glad I got a chance to read it. Um, and then also uh, coming out momentarily is Broadway and Beyond, which is the album that is the recording of the last oh, concert that yeah. Maren Maisie and Jason Danielli did together before Maren passed away. Uh, and it's just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it so happened that that concert was like a greatest hits of their careers. So mm -hmm. uh, it's so beautiful to hear them singing songs that were meaningful to them. Uh, singing songs together yeah. that um, maybe one of them had done with someone else before that they now get the chance to do. Uh, it's, you know, listen, when they were recording it, they didn't know it was going to be their last concert together, right. but uh, they did know that she was sick. Uh, so um, there are some pretty powerful moments when she talks about uh, her cancer diagnosis and what she's doing to fight it. And then she sings and the world goes round and yeah. you want to just like, your heart out and stomp on it mm -hmm. um but it's also just like a really good concert like yeah. it's uh you know even had she not died i think that they could have released this as like a uh very very legitimate concert recording yeah. and uh you know they're two terrific performers it's a great group of songs and we're just really lucky uh we're lucky to have this we're lucky that we had yeah. her as long as we did right. um so uh, I was really happy to get my hands on that. Awesome. My Something Wonderful is that I finally saw the Oklahoma revival. Oh, yay! <laughs> After many people have talked about it on here, and I had nothing to say about it because I hadn't seen it yet. So I've, <laughs> I've finally seen it, and I very much enjoyed it. I was sitting on the stage with the tables. Oh, cool. With all the prop, props put in front of me and everything. So that was super fun. Yeah, I just loved, like, how... It was really, they, they really made it about like the like young people's sexual journeys um, <laughs> at that time of their lives in that place at that time, um, which is, I mean, and as well as the rest of the plot of Oklahoma, but that particular part I've never, I've never seen or thought about. Mm. Um, and how, like to me, like, yeah, it was like, it was almost like, it wasn't so much that she was in love with Pearlie. It was more that, like, she just felt the most comfortable with him. Mm. And <laughs> well, and it's funny. When you see it with such a small cast, you yeah. also get the sense that, like, there's no one else out there, right? Right, like, right. It's like, these are the only two guys that she has the right, choice between. him or him. <laughs> yeah. And, and with Ado Annie, too. Like, yeah. just a different sexual journey. But the, you know, I thought they really just, they leaned into that. And that, and I really enjoyed seeing the show that way. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater. We'll answer your questions on the season finale. Please also email if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song, on Twitter at scene song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. 
The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode. <laughs>